Well, that's my goal, and I'm thankful for some of you who prayed. Many of you prayed for me just that that would, would be what happens, is that we hear from God, we hear from His Word. And uh, I did want to make a note as just what Russ said. This was a particularly complicated text in some ways, and it made me thankful for the many complicated texts that Pastor Aaron digs into and faithfully does his best. We trust, we pray for him, but does his best to say what God has said in his word. And just, that's not easy work, and maybe thankful for him. I don't know where he is out here, but thanks, Aaron, um, for doing what you do and caring well for us. So, uh, before we dig, uh, yeah, before we, let's just read the word first so I don't forget. So, we're going to continue in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Last week we were looking at the principles for marriage in verses 1 to 25, and there's a lot of overlap in this week's verses, verses 25 to 40. So God's word says, Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. Those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. Those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord. How to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things. How to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he's not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It's no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she's happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Lord, we do ask again for your name's sake. Speak to us through your word. Help me to be faithful to it. Lord, give us humble hearts and ears that are ready to listen to you. Lord, and glorify your name through this time. Lord, we ask for your Spirit to do work in us. In Jesus' name, amen. So, apart from being complicated, um, thank, thank you, Mark Oquist, who pointed out it's not pronounced betrothed, but betrothed. So, I was not even pronouncing half the words correctly. But, uh, let's just start with thinking about something related to this text. 
Now, we all, we all face decisions of different kinds every day. Some of them are big, some of them are small. Um, take, for example, around 5 o'clock, we're all going to have decisions in front of us. You have chili, chicken soup, potato soup, whatever it may be. We all have to make a small decision. What do I want to do? Um, there's lots of small decisions, and there's also lots of big decisions that we face. Uh, just one decision that uh, MJ and I are considering right now is we've been seriously thinking through, should we be buying a house or renting? We can, we've been renting for about a year, maybe a year and a half, um, thinking about the future, thinking about our current context. We're, we're wondering, what, what's the most faithful aspect? What's the most faithful route to honor the Lord? Is it, should we keep renting or should we buy a house? And there's actually a lot of overlap as we consider this with what Paul calls the Corinthians to consider. And so as we consider buying a home, we've, we've got to consider the current market, which most of you know is not a good one for people who want to buy a house. But take, we take that into consideration, the current time, the circumstances. We take into consideration um, how much money it's going to cost. Buying a house is obviously not a small expense. So how much money does it cost up front, but also there's continual maintenance and upkeep and expenses with owning a home. Uh, both, not only that, but we have a family now of five. We're thankful for Ruth. And as our family grows, we start to consider what does our family need? Do we need to rent a bigger place? Do we need to buy a home? The, f- the family dictates that decision. And, and lastly, um, even what we want isn't always clear. We've actually made a couple offers and they were both denied, but in both cases it was kind of like, do we really want this? Is this even what we want? Oh, we've already made an offer. Oh, no. But even um, our own hearts, assessing our desires in this decision, what do we want? It it all goes into this. And we've also sought counsel from family, from friends. And I think that's what's happening here in similar ways is that the Corinthians have sought counsel to Paul. They've asked some questions. Last week, Pastor Aaron started in chapter 1. It said, now concerning the matters you wrote to me. And then he lists the question or the topic. Now in this case, in verse 25, now concerning the betrothed, we don't actually have the whole question they asked. And that's one of the things that makes it a little difficult to interpret. But we do know the general idea of what they're talking about. They're likely discussing marriage, people who are engaged or unmarried, or also including widows. How can they faithfully honor the Lord in this time, in these last days? And Paul gives them some considerations. He gives them some things to think about. Particularly, he wants them to consider the benefits that come with singleness. So, we have to remember the Corinthians' context as we look at these verses today. In this case, the Pastor Aaron pointed out that there might have been some ascetic, some groups in the Corinthian church who, were, who had some wrong thinking about marriage, singleness, sex, And he's addressing these questions and trying to give them biblical counsel about how they should make these decisions. And so he is going to, in some cases, we know in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul very clearly shows how good marriage is. And when you read that chapter, you might start to think, well, what about single living? Well, in this case, it sounds a little bit like Paul's going to be speaking not negatively, but he's speaking very highly of singleness. And I think both of these passages need to be taken together to get a full picture of what marriage and singleness and how we honor the Lord in those decisions look like. But in this particular passage, Paul very clearly lists the benefits of single living. 
And we're going to look at those. He says four things in this passage. He wants the Corinthians to consider, first, the times they're living in. Consider the coming of Christ. Second, he wants them to consider the real, genuine, legitimate concerns that come with marriage. Third, he wants them to consider their capability that the Lord's given them in this decision. And last, he says he wants them to consider the contentment that there is in the Lord. And so let's just look at those one after the other. So Paul begins, again, this council with chapter, uh, verse 25. He says, now concerning the betrothed. So he's starting a different question that he's addressing. I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. And so very clearly Paul is saying, I don't have a command from the Lord about this, but I'm giving you my counsel as one who's trustworthy. By the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. And so what he means by that, when he says, I'm giving you my judgment, I think counsel is another way you could look at that word. He's not saying, here's some thoughts about marriage and singleness, take it or leave it. It's not really that big a deal. Remember, Paul ends this section by saying to the Corinthians, I too am one who has the Spirit of God. He's pointing to his apostolic authority. These are, this is counsel, but he's pointing to his authority as an apostle to give that counsel to them, and they should consider it with that weightiness. But when he says it's not a command, uh, we, we saw in chapter 7, verse 10 and 12 last week, he said, to the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. And now in that case, he was giving a clear command. He was reiterating a command of Jesus found in the Gospels, recorded in the Gospels. Then in verse 12, he says, To the rest I say, not I but the Lord. And he lists teaching based on his understanding of the Old Testament and Jesus' life and ministry. Not necessarily straight from the mouth of Jesus, just like the command on divorce. And it's the same thing here. He's giving counsel as an apostle, entrusted as a steward of the mysteries of the gospel by God, commissioned to do ministry, filled with the Spirit of God. He's giving counsel to the Corinthians about how they can address this particular decision. So he can be trusted. For us today, this is just as much a part of Scripture as any other verse. And actually, if, and I think I might have actually addressed this verse in the past in this way, if you say, oh, this is counsel. I don't really need to worry about it. I think we need to address our hearts. All of Scripture is useful for teaching, rebuke, correcting, and training. All of Scripture, including these verses, which are Paul's counsel. This is part of God's Scripture for us today. So we should assess our hearts as we listen. We should listen well, listen humbly to this good counsel Paul gives. But secondly, I want want us to consider Paul's heart. So as Paul gives this counsel as an apostle, just look at this just this passage about what he says. He says that he's giving this counsel because he wants to spare them of trouble, in verse 28. He wants to free them from anxieties, in verse 32. It's for their benefit, not to restrain them, in verse 35. He wants to secure their undivided devotion to the Lord. Verse, I think that's, uh, yeah, verse 35. And lastly, he says he actually has their happiness in view in giving this counsel. I think that helps balance it out, that we see Paul's heart. He's not laying out restraints on the people. He has God's glory and their good as people, what he thinks will bring them joy and maximum enjoyment in God in giving this counsel. So I think we can come with it knowing his heart as well. So first, verses 26 to 31, what is his counsel? 
He says, consider the coming of Christ. So in verses 26, 29, and 31, we see that he uses these key time words. So in verse 26, he says, in view of the present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. Then in verse 29, this is what I mean, brothers, the appointed time has grown very short. And then he gives some teaching about what's coming and in verse 31 he says the present form of this world is passing away. So three time words. All of these are related to the second coming of Jesus. And that's really what he's talking about. Some, some interpreters have viewed this, this statement about the present distress possibly as something that was particular to the Corinthians context like a famine. I think that's possible but I don't think that's what is really going on here. And even if you do take the route that this is a famine, famines, earthquakes, distress, these are all part of what leads up to the second coming of Christ. These are all part of what makes up the time we live in in the last days. So either way, what he's talking about, he clearly moves in verses uh, 29 to 31 to the second coming. So the message he preached to the, the Corinthians, he talks about that in 1 Corinthians 15, The message of the gospel was not only Jesus Christ has come and he's come and died on a cross to right you with God and right now you can be right with God by faith in him. You can be free from sin, free from sin's penalty and punishment and you can have a right relationship with God and and Jesus has left, he's ascended to heaven, he's at the right hand of God. That is not the end of the gospel. Jesus Christ is not separate and removed from us. In fact, part of the gospel is that he's returning. And that's what he's pointing to here. The return of Jesus affects how we live our lives today. The gospel is not... Well, the the work of salvation is not finished. This is not the end. The end is not living here on earth, free from sin, free from sin's power, with God's spirit dwelling in us. These are all good things, but it's not complete. Christ will come again. Christ will come and sin will be gone. No more sin. And we will be with God, not just with God's spirit in us and all of the good benefits we experience here as we gather in his body, but God will dwell with his people and he will be their God. So those are the the truths of the gospel. And Paul wants to remind them of that. It's not over. Christ is coming back and living in between the times, between his first coming and his second coming, is a time of distress. This affects how they make a decision. It's a time of suffering, a time of persecution, a time of temptation for all people. But how much more is that suffering, that temptation, that difficulty from persecution for those who are married? When you see a, a spouse enduring temptation, trial, struggle, persecution... Paul knows that marriage will bring worldly trouble and pain. And he says he wants to spare them of that. Secondly, he tells them the time is short. The time between when Christ will return is short. And it's relatively short, meaning all the, all the salvation history that has already been accomplished is so much. So much is already done. Christ is at the right hand of the Father. He could return at any time to finish the work. That means the time is short. And that should affect how they make decisions. 
the reality that Christ Jesus could return at any point should affect how they make decisions about marriage, singleness, and daily life. Um, Mia Worrell is in our small group and she broke her wrist. I think it was broken. Uh, But we were all praying for her, uncertain about exactly what it would look like. And we were thankful. We found out it was some sort of stress line fracture. She can actually wear a brace and it will only be for about two months. Now, some of you know the days of casts, you know, the big clunky thing for months. Or some people have even experienced lifelong debilitating injuries. Now, we were thankful for a reason. It's much different to wear a cast, a brace, for a few weeks or a month than it is to have a lifelong debilitating injury. And in the same way, Paul counsels them that the short time that remains until Christ comes informs how they live their life. And that's what he moves to in verses 29 to 31, is this world in its present form is passing away. Marriage... He lists these things, marriage, joys and mourning, business and homes, stuff. It's all temporary and it's part of this world that's passing away. So Paul's counsel to the Corinthians is that they prioritize all of these things in the right order, including marriage. Marriage is part of this world in its present form. It's a good thing, but marriage in its present form is passing away. That's what he means when he says in verse 29, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Now, especially in the context of chapter 7, that definitely does not mean live as though you don't have a wife. Don't take care of that woman who you've married. Don't spend time with her. Or even a more spiritual route, devote yourself wholly to the work of the Lord and don't really pay attention to your spouse, your husband or wife. No, what he means is And he he lists these other things. Well, I guess, yeah. Chapter 7, he's already stated husbands and wives have a real, genuine responsibility towards one another. They're to consider one another's desires and needs for sexual intimacy. They're to consider and pray with one another. They're to consider each other's needs. Those are genuine, legitimate concerns that husbands and wives should share. So he doesn't mean this extreme view. I'll just act as if you don't have a wife. What he means is marriage in its present form is, is temporary and we should treat it as such. It is not ultimate. Just like these other things. Businesses, jobs, goods and services that we purchase here, homes, all of them are secondary. They're temporary and passing away and we ought to live as if that were true. Our lives should state that that is true. So, again, we're considering buying a house, and this principle, although it's regarding marriage, has actually served us well, because it's kind of stressful. It's stressful to be looking at other houses, looking and all that stuff. People who've done it know it. It's been stressful, but what has brought some comfort to my heart is, you know what, in the long run, it doesn't really matter that much. Whether it's a, a rented apartment or a house, Regardless, it's only for a lifetime. And for many people, you don't even live in the same house for a whole lifetime or or rent. So, in the same way, this has brought great comfort to me. This is not my eternal home. Our realtor a couple of times used this, the phrase forever home. It's kind of cheesy. I'm like, goodness, that's not true. Praise the Lord, this is not my forever home. (laughs) But, um, 
The same is true for, for marriage and relationships. He wants us to rightly think about the relationships we have here on earth. So to those who are in the church, if you're unmarried and you're considering whether or not to get married, Paul gives these truths to consider. He says that marriage is temporary. Remember, consider that. Marriage is temporary, not forever. Secondly, marriage will increase troubles on earth. It will. And the time for serving Christ until he returns is limited. It's short. He could return at any point. And so his counsel to them, and really this is counsel to all of us, whether you're married or single, is that how we live should demonstrate to the world that the eternal marriage union with Jesus is ultimate. Not our earthly singleness, not our earthly marriages. These are all our business, our homes. These things are all temporary. They're shadows of the, of the heavenly substance, of the reality, of the, the better things, which point to Jesus. Perfect, sinless, eternal, joy-filled union with Christ. And so we should live as if that is ultimate. That is greater than the things here on earth. Again, we'll get into this later. It doesn't mean those things aren't good. It just means they're not ultimate. And so he says, first, consider the coming of Christ. Second, he says, consider the concerns of Christian marriage. So verses 32 to 36. Let me read that. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. So remember in verse 28, he said that those who marry will have worldly troubles. Then he went into discussing um, kind of the end times living. And then in verse 32, he says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The, wor- the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Now, I think very clearly Paul is now fleshing out, he's explaining some of the worldly troubles he was talking about in verse 28 that come with marriage. And I use the ESV I, I almost always use the ESV, but in this case, I really prefer the way the NIV translated some of these phrases. I think it's better. And so part of the reason is worldly, we often associate with bad, that sinful attitude of rebellion against God. Now, I don't think that's what Paul means in this verse when he says worldly. Some other translations use a different phrase. When he says worldly, he means earthly, the things here on earth. And then when he says anxious, it's hard for me to think of the word anxious in a not negative way. And I, I like the way the NAV, I think, translates it as concerned. So I say that because these are not necessarily negative words. Paul's not saying these concerns you have for your spouse, husband or wife, in the world are sinful. That's not what he's saying. Paul's not trying to warn the Corinthians against idolizing their spouse making too much of them and making too much of marriage. Paul is, what he is doing is he's warning them that they are creatures, not the creator. They have limitations and they can only handle so much concern and marriage will demand much concern. If you've been married for any amount of years, you're probably saying, oh yeah, I know. So marriage demands much concern, 
much energy, much brain power, much emotional fortitude. And Paul wants to tell them, if you get married, a lot of the concern that as a single person you can wholly give to the Lord will rightly and necessarily be given to your spouse. You need to rightly be concerned for them. So he's not warning against idolatry. He's warning them about their weakness, their limitations as humans. So, as we consider buying or renting a house, I'm, I'm very aware that buying a house, homeownership, in many cases, ironically, not in all cases, we found some really tiny houses, smaller than our apartment, for way more money than you'd want to pay. But in most cases, homeownership typically includes maybe more space, more stability, as you consider this is a house that you've owned, but also it, can, it contains a lot of other things like all of the ho- concerns of homeownership, the, the maintenance, the upkeep, all of the work that goes into it, mowing the lawn, some people like it, some don't. But this last month alone, in our apartment, the disposal broke, the microwave went out, we had a small insect problem, and there's a water heater plugged in our uh, water heater area. In all these cases, we just said, hey, maintenance, we got problems. And maintenance came and fixed it. And it was free. I mean, obviously that's part of our rent, but way easier. If we were in our own home, and as we've looked at some not-so-good homes, some of these things would break right away, you'd have to fix it yourself, right? All of these things add concerns to your life. You've got to fix all of these things, figure out how to fix them, or pay money and take the time to find people, which Jared Jerome mentioned to me recently. It's, it's hard to even find somebody these days to come to your home and fix something. Now, if you're Pastor Aaron, you just say, Maggie, can you fix this? And she fixes everything. <laughs> but I think that's pretty much true. So, but Paul wants to free up maximum, maximum concern for each person so that they can devote themselves wholly to the Lord, to the King and His kingdom. And he knows that when two people get married, they will necessarily carry one another's burdens. They will consider one another's needs. They'll pray with and for one another and they'll consider their spouse's need and desire for sexual intimacy. So if you get married, your concern will be divided. That is a fact. And it should be. So, Paul says, I want you to be free from these concerns so that you can be wholly devoted to the Lord. And he actually says something really challenging. He says he wants them to be concerned about the the things of the Lord, concerned about how to be holy in body and spirit. He actually assumes that if you are unmarried, if you look at verse 34, the unmarried or the betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord. How to be holy in body and spirit. It says the same thing about the man. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord. How to please the Lord. He makes this assumption about Christians that we are concerned about how to be holy. That is what we are concerned with. We are concerned about what pleases the Lord. That's challenging To any of us, married or single, it's humbling. But Paul's desire, again, it's not for them. He doesn't want to lay restraints on them. He's not trying to shackle them. He wants to secure their devotion to the Lord without division. And so as we approach these questions and these decisions, we have to ask ourselves, are we asking the right questions? As you consider marriage or singleness, Are you asking, what is going to free me up to give me maximum amount of time to pursue my hobbies, my interests, or my career? 
Same is true in marriage. Are we asking ourselves, what is going to bring me the most personal fulfillment? Or are we asking the questions, what is going to enable me best and most to pursue God and his kingdom, to pursue holiness through him and for him, and to serve him? Also in this this passage, we're reminded of the genuine, legitimate concerns of marriage. It's a lot of work, and Paul rightly wants single people to consider all the work that's going to go into marriage. And it reminds people who are married, marriage does take work. Marriage takes a lot of concern, takes a lot of time. And that's not wrong, it's needed, it's good. So consider the coming of Christ, consider the concerns of marriage, consider the capability that you've been given in Christ. So here in verse 36, 36, it's the right text. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It's no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart, to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well. And he who refrains from marriage will do even better. So, again, Paul's given these counsel, this counsel, consider the coming of Christ, and he wants to secure their devotion to the Lord. That's the goal of, that, of his last teaching. He wants to secure their undivided devotion to the Lord. So he says he counsels remain single, but in reality, for some people... I think however we choose to word this, those who have not been gifted with the gift of singleness, not getting married would actually inhibit their growth in holiness. Not getting married would actually make it more difficult for them to serve the Lord. And that's some, to some degree who he has in mind here in verse 36. He says, if anyone thinks that he's not behaving properly toward his betrothed, so one, he wants them to consider the person. Well, there's actually two interpretations here. If you have the RSV and maybe some other versions, they take this as a father and his relationship to his unmarried or engaged daughter. Or you could interpret this also that this is looking at a fiancé, two fiancés, a woman and a man who are engaged to be married but not yet married. Now I, I opt for the second, not the first. And I think that that's not a minority view. Many people do. But one is because he talks about this, this engaged couple. He says about the man, if your passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. So remember, he's not laying restraint on the people. He, he wants their benefit, and he wants their undivided devotion to the Lord. And for some, particularly this, this person, whose passions are so strong that he says it has to be. If you lay a regulation and a restraint on this person, it's actually going to inhibit their holiness. In chapter 7, earlier it said, it's better to marry than burn with passion. He was describing uh, to the unmarried and widows. So there's some overlap here. Again, the goal is not to hold out singleness as the only and the best way to serve the Lord. And the goal is not to hold out marriage and say this is the only and the best way to serve the Lord. His goal is to give counsel for them to consider the world they live in and their personal capability in this case and then to do what will enable them to serve the Lord best. For some, he says, that will mean marriage. And that's good. And then in verse 37, he says, for some, 
that will mean singleness. And that's good. So in verse 37, he's talking about, I really think this is important. He, he, he lays a lot of, let me just read it again. Whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control. Now he could have stopped there, it's pretty clear, right? But he goes on, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. I think this just reiterates the seriousness, the consideration, the prayerfulness that goes into this decision. This is not a flippant decision. It's not just someone told you you should be single or maybe you'd make a good single person or I feel like being single today. This is a serious, thoughtful consideration that this person has has considered. And if they make that consideration, I don't think it might be tempting or confusing In the ESV it says that he should keep her as his betrothed. I don't think they maintain a permanent position of engagement. I think the NIV and other versions translate it better, that they will just not get married. Not that they will maintain a a, a continual engagement. That would be weird and unhelpful in many ways, right? So, the end goal, I want to reiterate, is glorifying God, pleasing the Lord. So do whatever will enable you to do that best. So there's great freedom in this. And I think that it's really to the church's, in many cases, shame and detriment that in some denominations, there have been rigid regulations given to particularly those who enter ministry, you cannot marry. Now, that's not in Scripture. You might try to draw that conclusion from this text, but much of the scandal that has happened in recent years, particularly, I think, in the Catholic Church, has been because there have been regulations This person may not marry if they want to enter the ministry. And this person clearly was someone who burned with passion. Someone who would have better been served by entering into a covenant of marriage with someone else and serve the Lord with them. So we should not bind where scripture does not bind. Paul gives great freedom here to say consider the times, consider the concerns of marriage, consider your own capability, and then do what will enable you to serve the Lord best. Last, I just want to reiterate, neither is sin. He's pointing out, both are good. Marriage is good, and singleness is good. Whatever enables you to do the Lord's work and serve Him. So, last, and very briefly, he addresses widows in verses 39 to 40. He says, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet, in my judgment, she's happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. So, very briefly, a few things. He states, one, very clearly, that marriage is lifelong. I had to look it up. I was looking at the the marriage vow till death do his part. Doesn't make that much sense if you forget what comes before it. I think it's to having to hold to something and to cherish. Does anyone know that? I, I was stupid and I made up my own marriage vows. I regret that. But that, that particular marriage vow is very good and it is till death do his part. Marriage is lifelong. Secondly, marriage is in the Lord. Meaning that even in the world of Corinth where there were very few believers, Paul tells them you are to get married to other Christians. If you're a Christian, you're to marry someone who is in the Lord. 
And that's true not just for those who have been widowed, but for all people who are in God and in Christ. Lastly, Paul's counsel to the widows, it was in line with chapter 7, verse 24, which is the big principle of this whole chapter, that he counsels them to remain as they are and not get remarried, and he thinks that that will actually bring them maximum happiness. And how could Paul say that? It's because their ultimate happiness, this is true for all of us, indeed all of our happiness, is not found chiefly in another person, but in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So this is what caused St. Augustine of Hippo to say, he, he wrote out this prayer to God, and now it's a book called The Confessions, but he said, you move us to delight in praising you. For you have formed us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till they find rest in you. I think that principle is really what Paul is going for in all of his counsel. He wants the Corinthians to find their ultimate rest in God and in service to God, not in some job or in some status in relationship to some other person. So just to review, he's given this counsel to them. He says, consider the coming of Christ. Christ could come at any time. Christ's coming will be soon. The time is short. Marriage will bring trouble. It will bring worldly concern. Consider that. There's benefits to singleness. You can devote yourself wholly to the Lord. But you also want to consider your own capability. How has God gifted you? What capability has he given you? in all of these decisions. The last, he wants them to consider the contentment that is in the Lord. There is real joy and happiness in knowing God through Christ. Greater joy than any can have in any earthly relationship. So, let me just end by praying. I'm sorry. Lord, I I thank you for your word. I thank you for the the clarity of your word. Even in a passage like this, the, the big things are so clear. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you will return for your bride and that your bride, your people, will enjoy eternal union with you forever in a new heavens and a new earth and that that is a great hope. And that affects how we live our lives today. And Lord, I ask that you would help us, help particularly single people consider how you've gifted them and how they can honor you with their lives and help married people and all of us today to consider how can we serve you? How can we pursue holiness? Lord, help us to be good spouses for those who are married. Lord, in all of these things, help us ultimately to find our rest in you, to remain with you, to seek our joy, not in the things of this world, but in you. Lord, so we need your spirit. We ask for your help. We thank you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.